Corinthians chapter 1, I'd like for us to take our text this morning just from one verse there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll never forget a man, the church I preached at out in Wyoming that came up to me after the service and said, hey, I, I like that what you do. And I said, well, what do you mean what I do? And he says, well, you, you read a, a verse of Scripture and, and then you talk about it. And I said, well, what are you used to having to do? Oh, he says, sometimes they would not even read a verse of Scripture, would not ever even open our Bibles during a message, and sometimes they would read a passage of Scripture, but then never talk about it. But he says, I, I like this. Gives you an idea of the rather desperate, desperate state of things out there in the religious world in our day. reason that we put such stock in these passages is that this is the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, we read these words. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, or literally in the Greek, it's the present tense, them that are perishing. Foolishness. But unto us who are the saved, it is the power of God. We recently noted this verse in our Tuesday morning Bible study. Made some comments about it then, but I'd like to bring it to your attention this morning. For this verse tells us what so many verses do, and other passages as well clarify, that although there be many divisions of men out there in the world, many different races, many different nationalities, many different social strata, Yet when it comes to spiritual things, all men fall into one of two categories. They are either lost or they are saved. They are either the goats or they are sheep. They are either the spiritual children of Satan or they are the adopted children of God Almighty. They are either those who are walking in light or they are those who are walking in darkness. And many, many other contrasts could we make. But our passage sets forth yet another way of distinguishing these two groups. For our text tells us that one way that you know who falls into which category is through the reaction to what Paul calls here the preaching of the cross. He tells us to those who see the preaching of the cross as Foolishness, they are those who are perishing. But to those who are saved, the preaching of the cross is none other than the wisdom and the power of God Almighty. Now you say by that you mean, Brother Mark, that the lost simply will not see the gospel as the power of God. No, that's not what I mean. I mean that those who are perishing cannot see the gospel as the power of God. This epistle makes it very clear that we are not dealing particularly with a will not. We are dealing with a cannot, an inability. Just flip your page, at least in my Bible I have to flip the page, to chapter 2, verse 13. Paul has been speaking about the things that the Spirit of God has revealed to us. And in 1 Corinthians 2.13 we read, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, 
but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, the lost man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The man who is void of the Spirit of God cannot know these spiritual things. He cannot see them. And let me make it clear what I mean by that. I do not mean that a lost man cannot intellectually grasp what we teach in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is not a mental deficiency out there among the lost, and it's only the most intelligent of us that are saved. In fact, Paul makes it clear at the end of the passage here in chapter 1 that God has in fact chosen the foolish things. He's chosen those that are weak, those that are rather ignorant, those that are not, are not noble by birth, not the high and exalted. He has bypassed those and instead chosen to reveal his wisdom to those who are foolish, weak, and despised. But what we do mean by that when we say that a lost man cannot grasp the gospel of the cross of Christ is that he is unable to make a proper evaluation of the cross. Randy down here has to make appraisals in his insurance work. He has to be able to make a proper appraisal of damage, let's say, to a vehicle or to a home that's been damaged by fire. He has to be able to go in and look at what's happened and said, yes, here is my appraisal of the damage. So many thousand dollars perhaps, or so many hundred dollars. This is the amount of damage that has been done to your automobile or your home. So it is that a lost man cannot make a proper appraisal an estimate, an evaluation of what happened at Calvary's cross. He just doesn't see it. Oh, he sees it, but not really. In hearing, he does not really hear. In seeing, he does not really see because the spirit of blindness, lawfulness has come upon him and he loves to have it so. So the gospel preacher... His job, his duty, according to Scripture, is to go and to proclaim before lost men facts that the lost man is unable to freely and properly see and evaluate. He's like Ezekiel of old, who was set down in that valley of dry bones. Not just dead folks, but plum dead, we'd say. And he is commanded by God to preach to those bones and ask by God, can these bones live? And Ezekiel had enough sense to know that if they was going to live, it wasn't going to be him that made them live. He said, thou knowest, you know. And God said to Ezekiel, you preach to these dry bones. What do you preach? He said, preach to these bones. O bones, hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine? Talk about feeling foolish. Going out in the middle of a bunch of bones and saying, bones, Here's the word of the Lord to you. Hear the word of the Lord. How can bones hear? How can they live? And of course you know the story that as Ezekiel preached, these bones begin to come together in this vision. Finally flesh covers and eventually the Spirit of God comes and breathes life into these slain. That's a pretty good picture 
of the gospel preacher, my friend. That we proclaim the gospel to men who are incapable of receiving it. And yet we look unto God for that quickening power that grants to blind men the ability to see, truly see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we preach it? According to our text, just a few verses down in verse 21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It is the God-ordained means by which men shall come to know salvation. This morning I seek to do exactly that. I seek to set before you the cross of Christ. Randy, I know at one point, about a year or so ago, had to go to an appraisal school. He had to go and learn how to appraise damaged automobiles. Isn't that right? Well, we almost got right. He had to go and learn. What I seek to do this morning is to set before you some ways by which we can evaluate the sufferings of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Let's put ourselves in the place of a judge this morning. If you go out and run into somebody's car, or if you injure someone and are taken to court, that judge has to stand in the place of appraising the injustice that has been done, the hurt that has been afflicted. And that judge is in the place of assigning a value to that injustice. A value that he then demands that you pay. Is that not what a judge does? Let's set ourselves up this morning as a judge to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and I ask you what are the value of the sufferings of Christ and what are the factors that go into determining the value of those sufferings. Well, the first thing that I want to point out to you this morning is the fact that this was a just man who was dying at Calvary's cross. Certainly, it is the innocence of the one who has been harmed or suffered that comes into play when a judge would make an evaluation, right? I mean, do we get uh, really upset when a murderer gets murdered? Do we shed many tears when those, in fact, who have contributed to their own suffering suffer? But it's a different thing, is it not, when an innocent party suffers? I want you to consider a moment just this person who was hanging there on Calvary's cross, that he was the innocent one, the just one, the good one, the holy one, the righteous one of God. We have in the Gospels the text that Jesus went about doing good, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, loosening the tongues of those that were dumb, opening the ears of those that could not hear. In fact, the people exclaimed at one point, He doeth all things Well, this is the one that was suffering at Calvary. What charge will you bring against this one? Healing without a license? Disturbing the peace of the dead at funerals? Showing excessive mercy? Reckless selflessness? Inciting men to goodness? What will be the charge that you bring against him. In fact, examine him as closely as you like. 
put his life under scrutiny as men have done in these last 2,000 years, and you will only come to the conclusion that Pilate came to in examining him, I find no fault in him. Now we put my life or we put your life under the microscope. You remember Gary Hart a few years ago in the presidential campaign gave a challenge to the reporters, dig up some dirt on me. And they did. Complete with pictures. And here we find in the life of Jesus the same challenge. Which of you, he says, convinces, convicts me of sin? Look my life over and show me a fault. And those, my, my friend, who were the greatest champions of His absolute holiness were those who knew Him the best. Men like Peter, James, John, men that knew Him in the most intimate moments of His life, they are those who characterize Him for us as the holy, harmless, spotless Lamb of God. Surely, if you were a judge evaluating anyone else's sufferings, and you had one like this that you saw suffering, you would no doubt say that the sufferings of that man is of great, great value. This is not a murderer who's suffering. This is the holy. This is the just. This is the innocent one. And then secondly, I want you to also notice another factor that often comes into play when we evaluate the sufferings of someone, and that's the brutality of the acts committed Against them. We think about the case of the family down here in Mississippi some months ago that came home from a Bible study. Men were robbing the place and finally murdered the entire family, raped the little daughter, and burned the house down on top of them. I suppose that's not a Mississippi burning that we will hear much about in the media. But nevertheless, we are incensed because of the sheer brutality. Of the act. And it is that brutality, as it were, that adds more value, more worth to the sufferings that those people endured. And if the light of Calvary shows forth on the one hand the sinfulness of Jesus, that same light, my friend, displays and displays in vivid terms the brutality, the wickedness of wicked men. You want to know what your sin looks like? And you take a long, long look at the cross, my friend. Light had come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. They hated the light, and they did everything they could to put out the light. For my friend, what happened at Calvary's cross was not an isolated incident. It was the culmination of a series of events that had transpired throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. Look over in John. John is so careful to document this to our sight. In John chapter 5, someone, Randy, someone pointed this out to me uh, just a week or so ago. Here is the case of the man who was healed lying at Siloam's pool. He'd been 30 and 8 years, could not walk, lying there hoping that someone would put him in the water when this angel came down and stirred the waters. You know the story. And Jesus comes by and says to him, Rise up, take up thy bed, and walk. Well, in verse 9, we read, Immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And the same day was the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is, not, it, it is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. 
Talk about straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Here's a man hadn't walked in 38 years, healed, and what do they do? Jump on his case. Well, verse 11, he answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. And it's interesting to notice the man constantly refers to Jesus as the one who has made him whole, the one who healed him. But that's not how the Jews refer to Jesus. Look how they refer. In verse 12, Then asked they him, What man is that who said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? You see, they didn't say, Which man is it that healed you? That's what he said. The man that healed me said, Do this. They said, No. They didn't ask about who's the man that healed you. They just said, Who's the man that said, Take up your bed and walk? They couldn't see the miracle, you see. All they saw was a violation in their minds of their view of the Sabbath. And on and on down through the passage, verse 13, And he that was healed wist not that it was uh, who it was, for Jesus had moved away, a multitude being in that place. Jesus finds him in verse 14, and then verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him whole. There it is again. Who's Jesus? He's the one who's made me whole. Verse 16, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Isn't that strange? And of course you know that even this situation is taken to a higher degree here in John 9 when we have the man who had been blind from birth healed of Jesus. And you look starting in about verse 22 of John 9 at this man's examination by the Sanhedrin. And here he is standing before their eyes, obviously seeing they have the testimony of his parents that yes, this our son He was blind from birth. How it is that he sees, we don't have any idea. And he's the man is standing there telling them, this man named Jesus came along and made me see. And yet they will not see the miracle, will they? They say, well, um, verse 24, Then again called they to the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I know not. But one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, what did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you did not hear. Why would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Isn't that interesting? That's exactly the point. I've told you, you won't hear. And they wouldn't. They wound up kicking this guy out of the synagogue, excommunicating him. What was his crime? Being healed by this man named Jesus. And then in verse 35, Jesus finds him and asked him, Do you believe on the Son of God? In verse 36, he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he who talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I am come into this world that they who see not might see and that they who see might be made blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said unto them, are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, if you were blind, you should have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin Remains. If you were blind, I'd heal you. 
I'd give you sight. But because you say you see, you see, that's the reason men do not see, is that they say they see. It's much like Rudyard Kipling's story of the king that, you know, had the fellows weaving him that robe out of gold. You know the story, that only they said this will be a magical gold coat, gold robe, only the most worthy of people will be able to see it. And they got him to give them all this gold bullion and they were going to make it into thread and weave this coat. And of course he went in one day to be fitted and they of course hold up this coat, invisible, you know, but, but he, King wasn't about to tell him he couldn't see the coat. And they put it on him and they stand back and talk about how wonderful this robe is, what a beautiful is. And of course the king would be ashamed, only the most worthy could see it, they said. And he wasn't about to let on that he couldn't see it. And so of course the day comes that they're finished. And they have a grand parade and hear the king marching down the street in his underclothes. And all the people see the king walking down the street in their underclothes, in his underclothes. But are they saying the king is naked? No, no, no. They had been told that only the most worthy of men could see it. So they all exclaim, what a wonderful robe this is. How beautiful it is. Till the old village fool comes out and looks and says, the king's naked. The king's naked. That's what Jesus is saying. Because you say you see, your sin remains. No, they will not see it. And of course, that those incidents, and we go on in John 11 talking about when Jesus healed Lazarus. That was the final straw. From that moment on, they said he's got to die. What do you mean got to die? For healing? For, for raising a man from the dead? Are you nuts? Are you crazy? But light had come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. And then look at the brutality of the acts that were committed against Christ at the cross. The, the brutality at all had been depicted in the Old Testament types and shadows. For you recall that when men had sinned, they would bring this little innocent lamb. You know, what, what's more innocent and harmless in our sight as a little lamb? They would bring that little lamb to the priest and he would take it, pull back his head and slit its throat and catch the blood and sprinkle that blood on the horns of the altar to make atonement for the man's sin. That brutal, violent act committed against the harmless, innocent one. And if we do not see it in the lamb, remember that if you weren't rich enough to be able to bring a calf or a lamb or a goat, there was a provision in the law where you could bring a bird. Perhaps a dove or a pigeon for the poorest of folks. Again, take the little dove. What is more a symbol in our sight of purity and innocence and harmlessness. And yet those priests would take that dove and twist his head off. And then they would take the body of that bird and squeeze it and literally wring the blood out of that body of that bird over the altar. Do you see what's being depicted in those acts? The graphic brutality that would be inflicted against this sacrifice for sin. And now we see it happen in the Gospel record. We see Jesus taken by the Jews themselves and beaten and mocked. We see Him sent to Pilate who sends Him on to Herod. Herod had wanted to see Him for a long time, wanted Him to perform, and when He would not, they mocked him. They sent him back to Pilate. Pilate has him scourged, and I'm sure you know all the ins and outs of that. 
Scourging alone would kill many people. Literally, folks would be disemboweled by being whipped with this cat, as it were, of nine tails, as we call them, with bits of metal embedded in the leather. No doubt by that time, Jesus was unrecognizable, just a beaten, bloody, bruised pulp of a man. And then we read that the soldiers take him in that condition and they weave a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They take a purple robe and put it on his back and a reed in his hand as if it were a scepter. And those soldiers get down on their knees and bow down and say, Hail, King of the Jews! They had heard that he was a prophet so they would stand and blindfold him and slap him upside the head and saying, Prophesy! Who slapped you? Who hit you? We read in the prophets that they plucked the hair from his beard. And finally, he is taken to the cross where they strip him of his raiment and nail him to that Roman torture stake. And not content with that, the crowds throng around him, mocking him. You that saved others, save yourself. Come down and then we'll believe. The thieves on one hand and the other casting the same in his teeth. The scriptures tell us. Here is the gentle one. Can you imagine saying, well, Jesus coming to town, let's lock the doors. He's liable to break in here and heal somebody. He's liable to come in here and commit first degree mercy. What absurd thinking. Here is the harmless, innocent Lamb of God, kind, tender. And He's taken and treated by the hands of man like you wouldn't treat a dog. Now so far, I suspect that any man, any man with any sense at all, that examined the sufferings of Christ would look at these sufferings and say, yes, If a man did this, let's say a man in our society committed such acts as were committed against Jesus, we would demand a high price for the crime of that man. We'd put a high value on those sufferings because of his innocence and his harmlessness, his gentility. Any man can see that. But a lost man is unable to see anything beyond that. You say, what you have said so far, preacher, indeed moves me. It moves my emotions. It moves me to tears to think of the wickedness that men exhibited towards the person of this innocent Lamb of God. My friend, you'd be a fool that would not be moved. But that in no way indicates to me that you understand what Paul is talking about The preaching of the cross. Because there are aspects of the cross that go far beyond this that lost men simply cannot see. They don't see the central feature of the cross for what it is that truly gives value to the suffering that was done there was not so much what was done as it is to whom it was done. If Jesus was just a man, oh, again, we would say, yes, suffering like this, we'd place a high value on it. 
But it would be no more so than the suffering of any other man. And there have been many men down through history that have been innocent and have suffered brutally at the hands of wicked men. Perhaps millions of men have suffered so. And yes, we would say, well, Jesus' suffering indeed is valuable. I esteem it as a valuable thing, but no more valuable than that which has occurred to any other man that has suffered innocently. My friend, what it is that gives value to Jesus' work there on Calvary's cross is that He was not just a man. That this was the Son of God. This was the Word of God incarnate. This was God of very God. And my friend, it is one thing to nail an innocent man to the cross. It's another thing to nail God to the cross. It's one thing to brutalize an innocent man. It's another thing to lay your hands on God and brutalize Him. It's one thing to murder a man. It's another thing to murder the Messiah, to kill the Christ. And I remind you that when Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost and spoke to a crowd containing the men who had nailed Jesus there, it was not some little incidental matter not holding their mouth right when they washed their hands, some little letterism of violating their law that he accused them with. But he accused them of murdering the Messiah. He was God in the flesh and you killed Him. Oh, my friend, the Christian says, yes, it's my sin that put Him there. That's what I did. Oh, we see it in Pilate's pride and presumptuousness when Jesus is brought in before Pilate for the last time. And Pilate asked him, who are you? And Jesus refuses to speak. And Pilate stands there before his God and says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have power to kill you and let you live? A man said that to the God who had put breath in his nostrils. It formed him out of nothing. And he has the audacity to say, Boy, don't you know who I am? My friend, that's sin. And that is the root of every single sin you and I have ever committed. And that's what is so hideous about sin. It is an attempted murder of God Almighty. It's an attempted rape of the dignity of God. It's a trampling in the dirt. God's thou shalt and thou shalt not. Man says, I will not have it so. And my friend, that is at the root, that is at the core, that is at the centrality of every sin you've ever committed. Oh, my friend, when we see who it was hanging there on that cross, that suddenly adds a new dimension to the whole picture. It puts it in a different light. And you see, that is what the Christian can see. That his eyes are open to who it was hanging there. But there's yet another factor that enters in. So far... A lost man 
would say, yes, I believe that the sufferings of Jesus Christ were valuable. Because, no doubt, the cross of Christ was the greatest crime ever perpetrated. It was an absolute travesty of justice. That's how a lost man views the cross. And indeed it was, from the human perspective, the Jews absolutely trampled in the dirt every single principle of their justice. The illegal night trial, the searching for false witnesses, the compelling Jesus to testify against himself, all of these things were contrary to their own established principles of justice. And then sending him, the final straw is sending him to Pilate, the Roman governor, who pronounces him innocent and then turns him over to be crucified. A lost man would say, yes, there is in this a travesty of justice. And so, yes, I would assign a high value, a high worth, and high estimation to the unjust sufferings of this innocent, innocent man. But, oh, my friend, through the eye of faith, seeing what only the saved can see, they look at the cross and what they see there is the greatest act of justice that has ever been displayed before this world. For my friend, they see that Jesus freely took upon Himself the sins of His people. And He stood there and suffered in their stead. And He stood there and suffered rightly, justly, for the sins of His people. You see, to the eye of faith, the Christian sees that that brutal treatment of Christ by the hands of wicked men, that this was nothing but an instrument in the hand of God Almighty. They see what Isaiah the prophet saw in Isaiah 53. It pleased God to bruise him. And my friend, that is the message of the apostles throughout the book of Acts. Look again at Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, you took him. You took him and with your wicked hands you slew him, but you took him by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You did exactly what God ordained to be done. You were the instrument in the hand of God to inflict suffering Upon his own son. The eye of faith sees that Jesus was not being inflicted by punishment, wrath from the hand of man. It sees that he was receiving wrath from God his Father. And so my friend, we understand by that, that the primary suffering that took place on that cross was not physical. Oh, certainly the physical agony was horrible, and we don't minimize that at all, but the primary suffering that took place there was not physical, but spiritual. And it's vividly displayed in those words that we read a little while ago from Psalm 22, when Christ cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That what Christ is experiencing on that cross is not just human suffering, He's experiencing hell. And his death, therefore, was no tragedy. It was not just an accident, events that got out of hand. It was not a travesty of justice. It was, in fact, a satisfaction 
rendered to divine justice. It had justice written all over it. For you see, the sin of Christ's people was an infinite sin because it was sin directed at an infinite being. And what will satisfy for infinite sin? I say only one thing. And this is why the suffering of Christ was unique. Any other man could have gone to that cross and nothing been accomplished. But what was unique about the sufferings of the Son of God is that it was indeed God in the flesh who was suffering. That's what gives infinite value to what transpired there. That as Paul points out in Acts 20 verse 28, that the blood that flowed in the veins of Jesus could properly be called the blood of God. Yes, it was the blood of a man, but because of who this man was, it was God's blood in his veins. And all the blood of men being shed innocently, we put a high value on, but what value will you ascribe to God's blood being shed? That is why, my friend, perhaps this question has crossed your mind. How is it that Christ, in a few hours' time, in some six hours, there that Friday afternoon, could hang there and pay a penalty, pay a price of justice, that should that price be extracted from you and I, it would take us an eternity in hell. It's because who it is that's hanging there. That's why. Not how many drops of blood were shed, but whose blood was shed. It is why then we ascribe an infinite value to the worth of the satisfaction that Christ wrought there on Calvary. I know our Arminian friends oftentimes accuse us of limiting the value of the death of Christ. They say when you believe in limited atonement, that Christ died for the sins of His people and for them alone, they say you are limiting the worth, the value of what Christ did on the cross. Oh no, my friend. Were there a billion worlds that were to be redeemed in the purpose of God, the blood that Christ shed there on the cross would have been sufficient. It's not a question of the scope. It's a question of the intent and the purpose. Let me put it to you this way. If we were to add one more sinner to the number for whom Christ died, I mean, Arminian Calvinists alike, we agree there is a definite number of those that will be saved, true? Were we to add one more to that number, would this have meant that Jesus had to suffer another five minutes? Another 30 seconds? No, he's, what was valuable about the cross of Christ is that he suffered unto death. It's not the quantity, it's the quality of the suffering that gives value to it. Again, not how many blood, drops of blood are shed, but whose Drops of blood are shed. Well, you say, if we're set in our place as a judge and we evaluate and give an estimate, an appraisal of the worth, the value of the sufferings of Christ, what will we and what will we come up with? Well, my friend, it really doesn't matter what you and I come up with since we're not in the place of the judge here. The question is, how does God Almighty view Christ's death on the cross? What value does He ascribe to it? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. That because of Christ going to that cross and suffering obediently, what has God done? How does He see it? How does He appraise it? He says, wherefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
And every tongue should confess that He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has rewarded His Son with salvation for His people. That's what He bought there at Calvary's cross. All the blessings in spiritual places residing in Him are there for you and me. Because the Father gave him those things. That's what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost again. You see the blessing that God has poured out upon us? Where do you think this thing came from? His son Jesus prayed for it and received it and has now poured it out on us. That's how the Father viewed it. Again, I take you back to my first point. There are in this world two groups of people, two classes. And they're based, they're segregated upon a two different evaluations, appraisals of the cross of Christ. Some see it as foolishness, the other as the wisdom and the power of God. And those, my friend, who truly see it, they lose themselves in its radiance. They're captivated by its splendor. They're not anymore what they used to be. For they've cast themselves on God's mercy, exhibited at the cross of Christ as their only hope of salvation. That one class still mocks and jeers the name of Jesus, but that other class that sees what went on at the cross proclaims Him Lord of Lords and King of Kings. One group still cries today, away with Him, crucify Him. The other class says, hallelujah, for the cross. I asked you, are you able to make a proper appraisal of the cross of Jesus Christ? Do you really see it? Do you? You say, well, I, I see it, but it's just not all that important to me. No, if you say that, you don't see it. Those that see it have lost themselves in the love of Jesus exhibited there at the cross. They say like the apostle, the love of Christ constrains me. Paul says that I was apprehended. I was apprehended. I was like a runaway, a fugitive, running from God. But God, by His grace and mercy, apprehended me. That's the language of those that have truly seen the cross of Christ. They were stopped in their tracks, caught, cut short in their rebellious acts against their God. And if you see it, then my friend, I call upon you today to cast yourself on what Jesus did for sinners as that, on that cross as your only hope. Bow the knee, surrender your life to Him as Lord, and take up your cross and follow Him. And if you don't see it, My friend, I point you to a throne of mercy and I say your only hope is to cry out to God that He'd give you eyes to see and ears to hear. For this preacher can't make you see it. Your parents can't make you see it. Your best friend can't make you see it. The church can't make you see it. The baptistry can't make you see it. The catechism can't make you see it. Only God can open your eyes. Oh, cry out to Him that He'd give you mercy. Mercy to see. I tell you to look. That's what Moses said of old when they had the poisonous snakes in the camp. But that brass serpent up on the pole said, look, look. And my friend, if that won't bring you to salvation, I'm not going to cheapen the gospel of Christ by dangling some carnal treats out in front of you. 
to try to get you to come to Christ because He'll make you wealthy. He'll make you healthy. He'll make you happy. My friend, if the cross of Christ won't bring you, then nothing else will. And to you that are saved, if the cross of Christ will not keep you, nothing else will. I'm not going to lay down the law. I'm not going to use guilt manipulation. I'm not going to put you under a legalistic system to try to make you toe the line, my friend, if the love of Christ will not constrain you. Then nothing will. That's the only... That's the only method this preacher knows of because it's the only method exhibited in the Scripture. I'm persuaded that the Gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes and that it will keep every one of them that it calls. May I close this morning with an old poem. It's from the pen of the old blas- the old African blasphemer, he called himself, John Newton. That wicked man that the sailors refused to sail with till God arrested him. And he puts in such wonders, oh, you've heard some of this. You'll, you'll recognize some of it. But oh, listen, listen to the whole story. Listen as he describes exactly what we've been talking about this morning. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, until an object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had shed and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but but all my tears were vain. Where could my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, had slain. A second look he gave that said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou might live. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. T'was blind, but now I see. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be. As long as life endures. Yet when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. 
But God who called me, and may I add called him by the gospel of the cross, but God who called me here below shall be forever mine. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to see. Oh, salvation is so simple. It's just in a look. In a look. And yet, Father, our eyes are blind. Blinded by the God of this world, lest the light of that glorious gospel should shine unto us. But, Father, break through in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, this morning. Break through that darkness. Pierce it. Speak the word. Let there be light. And cause that light to shine in darkened hearts. The light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May they see it. May they glory in it. And help us now as we proceed to commemorate and to remember that which Jesus did for us there at Calvary's cross. As we partake of Christ's table. Help us to do so, Father, as those who walk in light, who see, who extol the name of Jesus. Help us to remember. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.